I think what Chavez was looking for. It's not just a union, as you know, a bunch of isolated individuals who come together so that they could probably, you know, maybe get higher wages, but a union of the spirit, which is that deeper connectivity and real, really kind of mutual investment in one another, that is part and parcel of God's own kind of investment and engagement with our lives. Hello and welcome to Can I Get a Witness, the podcast. This podcast is an audio companion to the book, Can I Get a Witness? 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice. I'm Shay Tuttle. In each episode of this podcast, I'll talk with one of our authors about the person they profiled for the book and about their writing process. Today I'm speaking with Daniel P. Rhodes. Daniel P. Rhodes is Clinical Assistant Professor of Social Justice and Coordinator of Contextual Education at Loyola University Chicago and Editor-in-Chief of The Other Journal. He is co-author of Organizing Church, Grassroots Practices for Embodying Change in Your Congregation, Your Community, and Our World, which is published by Chalice Press in 2017. For our book, Dan wrote on Cesar Chavez. Well, Dan, thank you um, for talking to me today. I'm excited about our conversation, and I appreciate you making the time. So before we get to Cesar Chavez, uh, let's talk just for a minute about the book as a whole. Um, You're a co-editor on the book, and the book was your idea. So can you talk a little bit about why you wanted to put this book together in the first place? Yeah, thank you. Uh, Great question. So the book originated for me as an idea based out of the editing that I was doing of the other journal. And then my recent move to Loyola University of Chicago, where I was teaching students, uh, master's degree students in social justice. And so the confluence of those two things, on the one side, it was editing a journal that had really seen itself as basically a site for hosting discourse and conversation and engagement around the intersection of theology and culture and trying to do that in a kind of wide basket, hold all things type of way. Uh, And with that, uh, then teaching uh, the social justice students, the recognition that my students, vastly diverse, coming from ecumenical backgrounds, old, young, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, really didn't know much of what we would call the the radical or left Christian tradition, uh, any of the figures. Um, so even though they obviously would know of, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., but all the, the multiple communities and persons that throughout at least the last century, which is what we focused on with the book, uh, the figures that have, that were really involved and engaged in uh, public life as a result of their faith and uh, as something that they saw connected, deeply connected to their faith. And so the book for me began to emerge with how do I introduce my students to this and how do we take on a voice of trying to reclaim, I don't know what the proper word for it is, but a, you know, a Christian left, how do we begin to reclaim a kind of faith-informed left that, that can begin to articulate itself and understand itself with respect to a tradition that really does exist, but for many students right now has been lost in some ways. 
Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's really helpful. Um, okay, so let's talk about Chavez. Um, can you start out for people who um, may not be familiar with him or his story? Can you give a kind of brief summary of his significance? Why is he in this book? So I I think the significance of Chavez was that Chavez really piloted organizing among farm workers and and farm workers being a group of people who uh, really are are in many ways if you think about the labor ladder of the US the bottom bottom rung because they are often migrants or transplants uh, lack some of the basic what we would call kind of rights of existing within a society uh, of one's kind of family and birth and national origin and yet at the same time perform the the necessary tasks and acts of a basic necessity for the majority, I mean, for all of us, right? Which is, which is where do we get our food? Mm-hmm. And so Chavez, I think his significance is that he, he begins to pilot in many ways the organizing a group of people based upon uh, their connections to their tradition and their own faith and perspectives, but beginning to do so amongst really the most marginal, one of the, one of the most marginalized populations and groups uh, existing in the U.S., but, but are not seen in the kind of, you know, 50s, 60s era focus on urban poverty, right? So a lot of attention and studies and in sociology had been focused on urban poverty. It's kind of union organizing uh, fight and, and um, engagement to this very rural farm working population. And nobody had done that to this point. Uh, people didn't even think it would necessarily could be done. So let's talk a little bit about Chavez's childhood. Um, the, you write about a kind of a coexistence of joy and suffering, both. Um, so what experiences do you see in his growing up that were formative for him in his organizing life? Yeah. So this is, this is for me where even just writing the chapter itself became something of my own spiritual journey uh, or spiritual interrogation in many ways. Um, what I began to, to see as I was reading both his own kind of autobiography, biographical accounts, and uh, you know, others that had spoken of him was that one of, one of the real decisive events in Chavez's life while he was born and kind of really grew up on a farm in Yuma, Arizona, where he was surrounded by family and they were never wealthy uh, by any means. They were, they were still very impoverished, but there was a sense of community and connection there, a sense of kind of belonging and locatedness. And uh, when he was young, the family was basically thrown off the farm by the government who had reclaimed it due to unpaid taxes and uh, basically working in hand in hand with with uh, a neighbor banker who, from all from what it looks like, wanted to just acquire the property, and I think that that event uh, it really shows, in some sense, the tension at the heart of Chavez, which is anger and frustration at the the sense of being removed uh, and pushed out from his sense of home, and yet still taking with him that strong sense of home and that desire for home. You know, I think he says early on in his uh, kind of autobiographical statement, the whole of his work, in some sense, is kind of settling a personal score on that in that respect. And and you know that resonated that actually resonated with me pretty strongly. You know, for I grew up as the son of a, a, a preacher's kid who we had moved from our own. 
town that I had known when I was born, very safe and secluded. And, you know, there were deep problems with it as well. But I think there was, there was in me also a sense of there's a way in which we are all or both. What I found in him was a kindred spirit of longing for a kind of homeness to where, where is this home of this community of this kingdom of God that drives and pushes us forward and kind of catapults our own engagement in things. And yet, you know, also is continually frustrated by the world that we find ourselves in. And so uh, I think for Chavez, that certainly is the decisive factor in his growing up and in his youth. The other really decisive factor for Chavez, and this is what was really, really interesting in reading, um, is the way in which he grew up in this, what is, what's called kind of a homespun religion uh, of his, you know, Mexican-American upbringing and heritage. The sense that it was his grandmother and his mother who really catechized him and brought him up in the faith and taught him, you know, the basics of, of Christianity and exhibited for him what it meant to be a person of faith and to engage in many ways. And that was not just piety, but it was also engaging with others and serving others, even out of what might be one's meager goods. Mm -hmm. So those two things together, I think, really shaped and formed Chavez. And much of his work grew out of that. You talk about Chavez as a, an unlikely organizer. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the thing with these figures. On some level, if you hear the name Cesar Chavez, and he's becoming more popular in certain ways than he had been probably three to five years ago. You know, they sing or they ring as these kind of heroic figures that you assume, man, they must just have had it innately from birth. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Chavez... It, when you begin to read descriptions of him, when you even read his own words, he was not by nature a kind of extrovert, a you know charismatic leader. He's not a Bill Clinton or a kind of person that thrives off of these types of engagements. He really is kind of a meek. Um, I, don't, I don't mean that in the sense of like, he, you know, he could be easily pushed aside. There's also kind of an stu inward stubbornness to him. But you wouldn't, if you walked into the room, say, wow, this person is, is really, you know, exudes and exhibits the, the kind of talents and gifts of organizing, you know, uh, just the way that we would normally read it. You know, he even describes early on his own fear of, which I thought makes him really completely relatable to all of us who are kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you've ever tried to do something, you realize how scary it has, it becomes real quickly. You know, his own fear of his own uh, house meetings, which are small meetings and organizing that bring folks together to discuss the issues that they're facing and begin to try to identify where they might begin to work together. He was scared to lead those. We're talking about, you know, small group meetings of eight to 12 people in a household. We're not talking about speaking in front of, you know, 2,000 people. Mm -hmm. um, and so in many ways, he, he's not the stereotypical public figure in that way. I think that's also probably an asset in many ways because he's able to do the small, localized relationship building that's such a key part of organizing and such a key part of his own building of the Farm Workers Union. It was, it was intimately relational and intimately kind of local and contextual in that way. You know, as we, I, I think this is one of the challenges that we see in the current political environment is that there's kind of a rush to celebrity and a rush to kind of create these leaders that we think are going to deliver us in some way from uh, what's going as opposed to recognizing that actually this is collective work. And so I think Chavez exhibits that uh, in many ways. He's not this 
you know, dominating figure, but somebody who probably was more often quiet uh, in many ways. That doesn't mean he couldn't be stubborn, as I said. And that became problematic later on in his career and in his life, some of his stubbornness and probably his wondering whether he could really trust people in many ways became problematic. But from the get-go, I think it's his, his, he's almost undercover in many ways as a leader. Yeah. So I'd like to move into some of the, um, some of the stories of his organizing work. Um, so I'd, I'd like to ask you to read the excerpt from your chapter. It talks about this turning point in one of the strikes. But before you read it, could you, could you set up the story? So what's the strike about and what's happened sort of up to this point? So at this point, the kind of fledgling farm workers union has had a few kind of victories and they've engaged in some tactics that were controversial. One was a a pilgrimage from Delano to Capitol in Sacramento, California, that was pushing on grape growers to get union contracts, raise wages, improve living conditions. Uh, and they had achieved some small victories along the road. But at this point, they're trying to take on uh, DiGiorgio, who's the largest of the grape growers in the San Joaquin Valley area and, and certainly around Delano. And DiGiorgio is a name that most of us wouldn't recognize, but this is the, the kind of corporation, the, the family-owned business, uh, large family-owned business, that Steinbeck and the Grapes of Wrath had kind of uh, depicted with, with the Gregorio kind of group from the Grapes of Wrath. And they had been, you know, really impenetrable and, and, and uncontestable as an organization when it came to farm workers, that, that they were just really unchallengeable in many ways. And so we pick up the story here where Chavez, like many, many others before him, you know, and many other farm workers, was really kind of dumbfounded and out of options as a way to, to try to challenge this behemoth of a corporation that was really abusing uh, farm workers in many ways uh, as a part of their, their business structure. This is kind of where the story picks up, um, so I'll read it now. In the eyes of many of the farm workers, the tactic of nonviolence seemed to be failing, provoking a fairly tense meeting of union members at the American Legion Hall in Delano. Pressure within the union was building to respond to Giorgio's action with force. While the union agreed to continue nonviolently, Chavez admitted he was out of ideas of things to do but that he was willing to trust the members to find the answers. They concluded the meeting with things still up in the air. The turning point came, Chavez recalled, from a burst of holy creativity. A couple of hours later, he recounted, three ladies said they wanted to see me. Chavez expected them to ask for money, and he knew what he would have to refuse since the union was broke as a result of this long strike. Nonetheless, he invited them into his office, and as he reported, first they wanted to make sure that I wouldn't be offended by what they wanted to tell me. Then they wanted to assure me that they were not trying to tell me how to run the strike. After we got over those hurdles, they said, we don't understand this business of the court order. Does this mean that if we go picket and break the injunctions, we'll go to jail? Well, he said, it means that you go to jail and that we will be fined. They answered, 
what would happen if we met across the street from, DiGiorgio, from the DiGiorgio gates? Not to picket, not to demonstrate, but to have a prayer, maybe a mass. Do you think the judge would have us arrested? By the time they got the last word out, Chavez recounts, my mind just flashed with all the possibilities. After this meeting, Chavez asked his brother Richard to outfit his old station wagon with a small portable shrine. Richard installed a picture of the Virgin of Guadalupe, candles, a cross, some flowers, and a flag bearing the Union Eagle, and Union leaders held a vigil just outside the entrance to the vineyards. Soon they added a daily mass to the 24-hour prayer meeting. The practice gained steam. Every day we had a mass, held a meeting, sang spirituals, and got the workers to sign authorization cards, Chavez relayed. Those meetings were responsible, in large part, for keeping the spirit of our people inside the camp and helping our organization for the coming battle. Like Joshua, facing the formidable walls of Jericho, they confronted De Giorgio with active, prayerful observance, looking for God to work. Thank you. So as you know, your chapter about Chavez leads off the book. Um, and I'm really glad this is our first chapter, um, in part because I think that Chavez's story makes explicit what is sometimes implicit in other stories, that there's this intimate connection between the justice work and the spiritual or religious work. Um, you have a line where you say, Chavez always understood the movement to be about more than wages or contracts. It was a spiritual campaign. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? How were the practical issues of justice connected with the spiritual realities for Chavez? Absolutely. Um, some of this I already talked about because it emerges really, I think, from his own formation and shaping uh, as a young person, both from this experience of being uprooted and deracinated from his home in, in, in Arizona and the experience of that. Uh, but also, like I said, this, this deep uh, kind of immersion in Catholic faith as a person of Mexican-American heritage that was really schooled and, and given to him by his grandmother and his mother. And so what, what Chavez is looking for in the union is not only uh, justice for farm workers and, and, and justice in the form of wages that, that make life uh, possible, of you know, kind of rooting out all the exploitation around farm camp communities and the way in which jobs are offered and who gets paid and how you know, kind of conmen middlemen are you know ripping people off by getting them jobs and making them pay for them and then taking money, scamming in, in many different ways, and and just the huge kind of industry uh, of agribusiness, how it was exploiting workers, but but. What I came to see in reading Chavez, and, and as he describes his work in the union, he's fighting, yes, for all that, but he's also fighting for this sense of how do, where and in what way do the farm workers find a home where they are? How do they find this, this community, this kingdom of God where they are? I mean, this is, the, this is the kind of paradox of the farm worker in many ways, as I was speaking about earlier is that you've, this is a people doing the, the most rudimentary, necessary work for human provision, the ones that are providing the basic necessities for our livelihood, and yet they can't exist. They don't have a home. They can't live. They can basically have enough to, to meet their, not even their basic provisions. And so 
you've got this real, real contradiction at the heart of the farm worker, which still exists today. And I think what Chavez saw that as, is he saw that as a spiritual uh, ba- uh, problem. He saw it as, in some sense, a, a deeply, deeply religious and battle around what does it mean to be a people? And what does it mean to be a people of faith when this is the situation that you find yourself in? So for him, it's not just a struggle for the issues of material existence. It is that. But those are bound up with the sense that, hey, what we're striving for is, is in some sense, a kind of resting in and an invitation into belonging and, and residing in one's home. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. So I think, you know, out of this understanding of his, of this this connection, then that changes the way that the that the demonstrations look. You know, there's as as you talked about in your um the excerpt that you read, in addition to the, you know, strikes or boycotts or pickets or whatever that we might usually associate with organizing, there are these overtly religious actions, the fasting, the pilgrimage, the mass. Um, so, you know, we can see how that's part of uh, who Chavez was as you're, as you're reflecting on. What effect do you think that had on the farm workers that he was organizing to be participating in those actions? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's symbiotic, right? So even just the, the excerpt that I just read you, in many ways, the, the kind of introduction of the mass as a protest, uh, you know, across the street from DiGiorgio when they had, you know, worked with the local police and local judges to get these injunctions to where they couldn't even, they couldn't even stand out uh, outside the gates and protest, right? So they, the, the, the workers couldn't do that. Drawing off of their own heritage, women of the movement, farm worker women come and say, could we just pray? Could we just hold a mass? And I think in many ways, it's something that Chavez is drawing off of his own background and tradition. But it's not just Chavez, right? The people are asking for it. And they're actually introducing at times these things, right? And so even when Chavez begins to fast, in many ways, it starts off as a very private thing. And yet, as people catch wind of it, they start to gather at the headquarters and to then engage in mass and engage in prayer and circle around him in vigil. And so it's something that it's, it's, it's not I, I resist a, a, an attempt to to say that, well, Chavez just kind of, you know, he had these tricks up his sleeves and he was able to kind of manipulate the people with these religious symbols or these religious actions. That's not the case. I don't think that Chavez falls back on his own tradition. But in doing so, the people also are falling back on their own tradition to try to engage and and meet the challenge of what really is a a kind of insurmountable and incontestable opponent, right? It it really is, in some sense, you know, Rome versus the small, tiny community, fledgling community of early Christians in many ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's the empire uh, and all the power and wealth and infinite resources at their disposal against a small group of really impoverished and um, having uh, folks who have nothing. And yet their faith is what then kind of charges them and engages them in this reality. And so what makes some of these things work in some ways, and, and I don't want to instrumentalize them, but I think what makes them effective in many ways is that Chavez is connected into what people already want to do, which is to find the public exhibition, public material reality of their faith engaged, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. I like that that sort of last idea of, you know, he's connecting them with something that they're already 
feeling in some way and, and maybe just helping to kind of actualize that. Yeah. It's yeah, that's really powerful. Um, so you you refer in your chapter to a time when this this connection sort of between the the practical aspects of organizing and the spiritual aspects of it, when it really registered for you um, during church. Do you want to share that story? <laughs> Uh, you know, I was wrestling with this chapter, and as you know, you all provided such a great process, but it was not an easy process of grappling with, how am I going to introduce this person? How am I going to get into this person? How am I going to write on this person? I mean, I'm not a trained historian, you know, in that sense. <laughs> so so it was not an easy process. And, and I was grappling around, like I said, with this idea of my own kind of spiritual journey along with Chavez and seeing, huh, in some ways, these longings I have that I think others have for what does it mean to belong? What does it mean to kind of find a home of community and connection and, and uh, a sense of intimacy and relatedness that is the kingdom of God? How do, I, how do I articulate that and how do I find that in Chavez? And I think when I was sitting in our, our normal service, listening to our priests begin uh, kind of with the Eucharistic ceremony, the opening of it struck me. For whatever reason, on that particular day, to say, this is, this is what I think, in some sense, we're articulating one in the liturgy. But I think what Chavez was looking for—it's not just a union, as you know, a bunch of isolated individuals who come together so that they could probably, you know, maybe get higher wages, but a union of the spirit, which is that deeper connectivity and real, really kind of mutual investment in one another. That is part and parcel of God's own investment and engagement with our lives. So for me, it was the kind of just the light bulb went on and, and you know, the recitation of our Eucharistic blessing that, oh, I think in many ways, this is, this is kind of the story that's at the bottom of, of, of Chavez. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems kind of, you know, poetically appropriate that it would be during Eucharist, you know, just <laughs> knowing from, from your account, knowing about who Chavez was and how these, you know, movements worked. And uh, it should be during the Eucharist that it would all make sense, right? It just it seems sort of perfect. Yeah, and, and, you know, I mean, I, I don't get a chance to get into all of this in the chapter with Chavez, you know, because we had to, I think we ended up cutting it down, but we had to cut it down somewhere, you know. But, you know, I mean, it's also even as messy as the Eucharist is in many ways. In the sense of like, you know, like I said, and, and gestured toward this, and maybe this doesn't come out as much as it possibly should have in the chapter, but toward the end of Chavez's uh, kind of life and, and, you know, later on in the Union, it, you know, some fighting breaks out and he doesn't know whether to trust. I mean, so the, it's not just a kind of like, wow, an idealistic notion. It's all this power and gravitas of the Eucharist, but it's not, you know, as if it's some kind of purified ideal, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, that, that even the union itself is wrapped up in the real kind of specifics and tensions and clashes and personality conflicts that, yeah, that we have in all of our churches. Right? Sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> That's surrounded any given communion table at any given time, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So at the end of your chapter, you, you write, as I came to read about his life, I grew to see Chavez as an icon of what faith-based organizing can do. His life is a reminder of the kind of country for which Christians long. What do you mean by that? What kind of country do you think Christians are longing for? Yeah. I mean... I I think, and you know, we've already started talking about a, a lot of this. 
that, like I said, I think this intersection and, and interconnection between our own desires to be known and to find our own identities and our own realities uh, involved and enmeshed with other folks. And in that way, enmeshed and involved with the very God that we worship and celebrate. And like I said, I think Chavez exemplifies, if if that's what we're talking about when we talk about notions of solidarity, and I think that is what we're talking about theologically when we talk about notions of solidarity, then Chavez in many ways gives us a glimpse of that. He reflects that to us in a way that allows us to see ourselves and the possibilities for solidarity uh, within the movement, uh, kind of organizing movements and the possibilities for this within the church of how do we begin to create these kind of connections? This is what we're talking about. If this is kind of what we're celebrating in, say, a Eucharist or in our liturgy, that, that God has joined God's self to humanity uh, on the most intimate level, and has involved God's self in humanity, then what does that mean for our communities? What does that mean for how we interact with one another? What does it mean for how we continue to engage others? So I think for me, that is, is the striving of the Christian community itself, because that's what we celebrate. That is the kind of foretaste of the Eucharist that then I think becomes or hopefully becomes our, our way of living uh, in many ways. And I think Chavez gives us a glimpse of that, a very material, kind of like I said, nitty-gritty mm-hmm. practice of what that looks like so that it doesn't just kind of say, oh, start a book club. Uh, well, there's nothing wrong with a book club, but, it, but, it, but there's some nitty-gritty here, right? We want lots of book clubs with this book, right? That's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> that's right. Well, you got to start somewhere, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. How do you think Cesar Chavez is a witness that we need today? In, in what ways does his witness kind of speak to our current moment? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, I think it speaks dr- drastically to our current moment. Christianity and, uh, and you know, the, what would be construed as the left in our culture that would be, you know, maybe even not Christian is out of ideas. We do not know how to engage the current environment that we're in. And I think what, what Chavez shows us in many ways is that w- we don't need exciting, extravagant historical events to begin to recreate an alternative. It's the non-historical events, right? That, this is where these things begin. It's the engagement, you know, with two or three people and then with, you know, eight people in a house, talking, engaging, addressing, looking at the ways in which uh, provisions are not being made, that we're not caring for one another we're not engaging with one another, that we've become strangers to one another and, and have become satisfied in that estrangement, um, that we've become estranged from ourselves in the same way. And so I think, I think what Chavez puts in front of us is really kind of hope, right? That, that kind of slow, patient work of what it really means to create an alternative. Like I said, from the beginning, Nobody thought organizing farm workers is possible, right? But he begins to actually weave the the fabric of connections with one another in a way that I think poses for us a sense of, hey, this is actually how we can begin to create an alternative. If 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 you're dissatisfied with, which I think a lot of us are, with our current political climate, with uh, our current uh, society, if you're dissatisfied with your church, this is 
this is the alternative, right, in many ways. To begin the kind of slow, patient work of interweaving our lives, taking it seriously enough to begin to do that. Yeah. How do you think you have been changed by spending so much time with Cesar Chavez? Oh, wow. I think in, in maybe at least two ways. I think one, I think one thing that I realized from my own upbringing that really kind of still haunts me in many ways is that people, I think if you think of the way that people relate to us, that they don't generally respect kind of our, uh, even always our talents and our things that we're innately good at. I think what people end up respecting about others is their sacrifices. And I think one of the things that haunts me about Chavez is he cared so much about this vision of the kingdom of God and about the, the possibilities for that being exhibited among farm workers that he was willing to go out on a limb and really to kind of take an approach to things that seems to me really risky and, and even kind of counterintuitive and maybe not even logical at times, you know, to... To kind of say, hey, you know, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna, you know, reject an, a, a grant of fifty thousand dollars early on, uh, which was a lot of money back then, to start this union because I want it to be based out of the people's own care for themselves, um, and my, I'm gonna draw my salary out of that. And so I think part of me is haunted by his willingness to engage on that level. You know, I think it's this this kind of ongoing tension we have in our own Christian faith of where am I willing to go further than my own comfort in doing this. And so I don't know the answer to that. You know, there, there, there's a part of me that always says, well, you know, being foolhardy, there's no virtue in being foolhardy or, or kind of, you know, in self-laceration or self-flagellation. You know, that, that's not necessarily a virtue per se. But then also the sense of like, what? But change does require significant uh, sacrifice at times. And so what does that look like? Um, you know, uh, and then I think the other part of me has been really encouraged uh, by Chavez because this is something from my own personal perspective I've been wrestling with for quite some time, which was how to how how do or how does the kind of faith of my own church Christian community fit with organizing? Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of people when they look at it from outside think that organizing plays this Machiavellian world of, uh, of politics where, you know, the ends always justifies the means and uh, there's no objective reality, there's no truth to anything. You just do what you can to get ahead. And I think what Chavez depicts is maybe just an, a sense in which, well, that's not exactly the case. That that kind of what you're doing is you're overreading the wider political environment onto sometimes uh, these organizing uh, engagements. And that actually people are finding alternative ways through organizing of creating different political realities and, and, you know, sometimes going outside the boundaries and the lines of what we've thought of as the political, as some sphere that's just bound by, uh, you know, the fabric of which is power and is constrained to, you know, the, the kind of public space, if you will. And so I think I've been energized in that to say, well, let's then begin to think about what do the practices of organizing and work on the ground here among communities, how do those intersect and inter, uh, uh, kind of engage with our faith? And can we, can we begin to bring those closer together in a way that people begin to self-analyze them and discuss them and engage them in that way? So I would say those are two. You know, he's both haunts me and yet energizes me at the same time, <laughs> if that's yeah, fair. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> So Dan, anything else that you want to add? Anything that you'd like to talk about that we didn't get to? 
the one thing that I, I don't think there's anything major. The one thing that I was captivated by in reading Chavez that maybe we didn't talk about completely was that, you know, so I talked about this kind of homespun religion that he grew up in and, and his mom would teach him these little what are called dichos or, or kind of proverbs. And one that I found to be really important for him was this, this Spanish phrase, hay mas tiempo que vida, which means we have more time than life. Which doesn't really, you know, when you render it in English, it doesn't really make all that much sense. You're like, we have more time than life. What does that mean? Um, but I think this is where we get that sense within Chavez of, of how hope is grounded, not just in one's own immediate existence. Because if all we have is our immediate existence, it's, it's really hard to kind of have any kind of virtue of hope, right? Or, or, or to live in anything called hope. But that it's connected to a tradition and a community and a group of people that that really spans beyond us and that we begin to locate even our small kind of everyday practices within this larger narrative really reinterprets their meaning in many ways and can kind of reposition them and help us to re-understand them in many ways um, so that so that in this larger view actually opens us to life in the present in a different way. And so I think for Chavez, when we talk about you know, his view of the community of God or of, the, of the, the kingdom of God or of this theologically rich notion of home and belonging, that for him, it sits within this register of a, a larger and wider view of history and of what's going on in history that's made possible by his own upbringing and the teaching that he learns from it. Well, Dan, thank you. It's great to talk more about Chavez and to hear about your writing. So thanks very much. Absolutely. Can I Get a Witness? The podcast is a production of the Project on Lived Theology at the University of Virginia, a research initiative whose mission is to study the social consequences of theological ideas for the sake of a more just and compassionate world. To learn more about lived theology, visit livedtheology.org or find us on social media. This podcast is produced, edited, and engineered by Jessica Seibert and written, edited, and hosted by me, Shay Tuttle. Original music is by Drew Wilson. Special thanks to project director Charles Marsh. The book, Can I Get a Witness? 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice is edited by Charles Marsh, Shay Tuttle, and Daniel P. Rhodes. It's published by Urban's Publishing Company and is available now. Thank you for listening to Can I Get a Witness? The podcast.